Welcome to Set the Tone, the podcast, brought to you with support from BTL, the makers of MSculpt Neo. What is mindful eating? How do the associations we make with food influence what and how we eat? It turns out the psychology of eating and drinking is quite complex. Listen in as host Dr. Paul Jared Frank speaks with psychologist Dr. Susan Manis on Set the Tone, the podcast. The podcast is brought to you with support from BTL, the makers of MSculpt Neo. MSculpt Neo offers two therapies and a single treatment for less fat and more muscle. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to BTL's The Podcast. I'm Dr. Paul Jared Frank, and if you don't remember me, I'm a cosmetic dermatologist here in New York City. I'm the founder of P. Frank MD and the author of the Pro Aging Playbook. And today we got a special guest. We are talking to Dr. Suzanne Manis. She's a psychologist and professor of psychology at Widener University in Chester, Pennsylvania. And she's here to talk to us about some of the psychological issues that play a role in eating, weight, and weight loss, and how we can overcome them. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Manis. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. You know, it's very funny. People don't realize uh, I actually, I was a psychology major at Vassar, and um, I went to medical school to become a psychiatrist. And it's funny, I feel like I, I use so much of my psychology degree as much as I use my medical degree because it is clear, as you know, the mind-body connection is, is, so, is so powerful. We're only really now, I think, addressing this. Would you, would you not agree? I, I would agree. And uh, for a number of years, I was a competitive bodybuilder and personal trainer. And people would ask me, well, you have a PhD in psychology. What are you doing in the gym? Uh, <laughs> without really recognizing how much having your head in the game uh, and understanding the, the feelings that you're having, the emotions that you're experiencing, how important that can really be to kind of stay on the right track. And obviously your relationship to food and the psychology of it is going to be predictive of whether or not you, you have issues with it. Um, you know, like, what, do you have a basic game plan for people and how, how they should look at food? Well, um, I, think, I think that there are a number of facts that people don't really understand and that sometimes leads them to... Um, approach weight loss or weight gain, depending upon, uh, depending upon the person, to approach that in a not entirely knowledgeable way. And so um, I wanted to talk a little bit about something that people are not very familiar with and uh, whether, it helps, whether it helps an individual client or whether it helps that client to have more empathy for other people um, e either way, it's a win-win. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that people are fairly knowledgeable about um, has to do with insulin, right? And yeah. our body's main job in producing insulin is to allow us to store energy for the future. And we know what happens when people become insulin resistant, they become diabetic, um, and, and things start to break down. But there are two other hormones that our bodies produce that are very integral to our, our hunger and also to our feelings of satisfaction. And these are ghrelin and leptin. Oh, these, are, these are hot terms in medicine right now. 
Yes, they, yes, they are. So ghrelin is the hormone that sort of tells us that we're hungry, right? It's a, it's a stomach hormone, but leptin is the hormone that is supposed to tell us that we've had enough. Um, we, we have enough food stored. And so leptin is actually produced by our fat cells. Mm-hmm. The, the theory is that the more fat cells we have, the more leptin we will produce. And that should tell us to kind of pull back the reins on our eating. We don't need to store any more energy because that energy gets stored in the form of fat. So you would think that people who had a lot of fat uh, would produce a lot of leptin and would therefore cut back. But just like insulin, people can actually develop leptin resistance. Yeah. And so they, they do feel hungry all the time. And there's not this off switch to tell them, okay, you can stop now. And so I think from, from the perspective of a person who, who's experiencing this, it's really nice for them to know, right, that, that there's a reason why they're feeling this way. But as I mentioned a few minutes ago, it's also nice for us to understand that because it gives us empathy for people who who you see who might be overweight or might tend to overeat and recognize that it may not necessarily be willpower. Yeah. Right. It, it, it may actually be some type of physiological issue. Yeah. And um, so I know that one of the things that leptin has also been associated with I, I just learned this recently, are um, basically vascular inflammation that can lead to things like uh, cardiovascular disease, and I think it's even been implicated in psoriasis. Yeah, well, yes, you are right. <laughs> My God, you're really, you're, you've really done your research here. Which I think is really, really interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, and I think it's true when someone hears that, oh, leptin's involved in satiety, you know, people are like, well, let's target drugs because it's an on-off switch things. You know, whether hormones and the biology of our metabolism and everything is actually a complicated symphony of things going on. It's never just such a simple thing, something we can target. And we're always surprised how something could how something could affect a skin disease as much as it could affect your appetite. And we find these chemicals in so many different places, these hormones, and they have different functions in different places as well. We see this with things like serotonin and norepinephrine. Um, I mean, we see uh, melanin and things like that in different organs of the body, not just the skin. So I always find this super interesting how complicated it all is. Which makes it that much, I guess, more understanding why... It's very, very difficult to target a particular um, ailment or, or symptom with a particular drug because it's likely going to affect a large number of other aspects of your physiology. And it's also not, it's not really affecting, you could take a pill that's not really affecting your relationship because we know that's, you know, like nature versus nurture. There are some things that are truly physiological. It's a response. You could almost say for some people, it's almost like an addiction. They can't control themselves, but there is a relationship and understanding, making good choices about what to do with your hunger. There are things that we can change that affect that, 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 that balance. Correct. That is absolutely true. Yeah. 
Because I know when I'm hungry, I can't control my, I, I call it psychoglycemia. You know, I just, <laughs> I go out of my mind, I need something, but you know what maintains my weight is that choice of what I do with it. You know, knowing that this type of food may not be great to control my appetite and it may be highly caloric and not great for me. You know, you, you learn these things. And I think that's part of the, the, the psychology. Um, we were talking, you were talking, uh, about something that is very important. Uh, you can, I want you to talk a little bit more about this mindful eating thing. Yes, so mindfulness is sort of a general concept and it refers to us um, really being very present in the moment, very aware of what it is that we're doing. And this notion has been applied to eating. And so basically what mindful eating does is it helps us to appreciate and get increased enjoyment from the food that we're eating. Mm. So Americans have been taught, and, and if you've been to Europe, you know that their eating patterns are quite different from ours. Um, we have been taught that purchasing food, cooking food, consuming food, cleaning up, all of those things are chores that we're supposed to just kind of get it on and get it over with and yeah. be efficient about it. Um, as a result of this, we tend to eat mindlessly. That is, we just put things into our mouth with really not very much attention to what it is that we're doing. And we also eat very quickly. Fast food, right? Yes. <laughs> well, there's a reason it's called that. Sure. <laughs> and, um, you know, we consume more calories than we need. And we don't give our, our stop signals enough time to reach our brain to say, hey, you know, that, that burger's gone before that satiety even begins to kick in. Yeah. And so eating mindfully involves a, a lot of different aspects, but it involves you, for example, thinking about where your food came from. What's its source? What types of resources went into, um, into producing this hamburger? Um, you know, what kinds of um, people were used or involved in getting that to you? But then also thinking about how the food feels in your mouth, right? And, and thinking about its flavors and even thinking about what it might be doing for you phys physically. So in order for us to be mindful eaters, it's really important that we remove distractions. In fact, there's some research that shows that when, uh, when children eat dinner in front of a TV, uh, they eat much more, they tend to be picky eaters, and they don't make as good food choices as children who are not hmm. distracted by the television. And so it's also important to sit at a table. If we are conditioned and we are conditioned to associate things um, just by virtue of the fact that they occur together. If we become conditioned to associate sitting at the kitchen table or the dining room table with eating, then we're going to be much less likely to eat in other contexts. So the mindful eating portion of this is really just, I mean, not analyzing the food that you're eating, but thinking about it, appreciating it, thinking about the hard work that went into getting it from a farm to your grocery store, to your table. Yeah. yeah. Well, it took a lot more, it was a lot more effort to acquire food traditionally 
many, many years ago. So there was a lot, you know, it could be a day's work to put food on your table, literally, whether it's farming or, you know, putting food together and supporting yourself. I mean, that, that, that was what you did to sustain. So obviously there was a lot more intention placed into the meal, correct? You're listening to Set the Tone, the podcast, supported by BTL, makers of M-Sculpt Neo. M-Sculpt Neo offers two therapies and a single treatment for less fat and more muscle. So just to go back before, I like this whole deal of mindfulness, which may go against my original folklore that I heard that calories don't count if you eat the food directly out of the fridge. You know that one? Like it, doesn't, it doesn't count if you open the door and you eat out of the leftover thing. Like it does count. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. In fact, it probably counts a lot more than you think. And the calories in cookies don't count if they're broken. That's I mean, cool. I haven't heard that one. I like that one. If they're yes, broken. Yes. Yeah. Um, but no, eating out of the refrigerator is probably not your best idea. Yeah. And food companies are working against us here. Let's just comment that because those little like mini chocolate crackles and Mr. Good bars that I love, they make them small for a reason. And mm-hmm. but then you just eat 20 of them. Yeah, this is true. You know, and the companies are work. I mean, listen, there are people sitting psychologists that are working for food companies that are taking advantages of our normal instinct and mindfulness to get our minds off of it and to focus on our flavor and things. So, you know, it, it's difficult out there for people to, to lose weight when they, they have too many opportunities other than just like cooking, you know? Yes, there's, I mean, there's another, uh, which is one of the reasons why I think that all of the meal kit companies have been so successful um, because it does take a large part of the planning and the purchasing, you know, out, out of your daily life. So it does yeah. save you some time um, in that regard. But when I used to do nutrition counseling for people, there's this, I, I, I don't know exactly what produces it, but there are some people who have this sort of fatalistic approach where if, if they are what they would consider themselves to be weak and they eat a Hershey's kiss, well, I've blown it. I might as well eat the whole bag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's not really true, right? I mean, if, if you lost $10 just because it fell out of your pocket, would you then just take all the rest of your money and throw it in the street? That's true. Now, you, you know, you, you, sh- you should be able to recover from that. And, and trying to completely deprive yourself of something like Hershey's Kisses absolutely does not work. Because the moment you tell yourself you can't have something, that's the thing you want. Yeah, it's true. Oh, that is true. And I've said this before on this podcast before, you have to change the concept of cheating to treating and just know the balance and that, you know, it's, it, we're, all a work, we're all a work in progress here. There, you're never going to have a day of perfection that's not going to be potentially ruined the next day. You got to get up every day and make the effort. And hopefully some days or most days are better than others. And that's, you know, living a pro-aging life. Um, what, what, does the crunch effect, the thing that you've, you've spoken about in the past, is that related to mindful eating? What is the crunch effect? So the crunch effect is, um, this, this is something that I used in, in my practice for two reasons. Um, one is that the process of crunching by itself is satisfying. It's more satisfying to eat something that you're actually working at. So eating a banana is all other things 
being equal less satisfying than eating an apple. But really the important thing about the crunchy foods is that they take longer to eat. And while you're taking longer to eat that item, you're giving your body a chance to send those signals to your brain to say, hey, you're getting food and it's still coming in, but soon you're going to be done and you're not going to need to continue. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a big uh, raw carrot. I like raw vegetables. I always keep, I eat a lot of raw carrots and celery and I, it's the crunching thing and I can nibble on them slowly and I actually get full throughout the day without having to eat a big lunch. The only problem for me is the nuts. They go down so quickly and they're so crunchy and delicious. <laughs> they do. They do <laughs> um, and they are high calorie, but they're yeah. also, they're also generally very good for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you're again, supposed you to know, eat like you, five or 10. You're not supposed to eat 50, right? Correct. Um, which is also one of the reasons why when I was doing my nutrition counseling, you know, if, if somebody wanted a piece of fruit with their lunch, I would say, okay, well, you're going to have an apple, not you're going to have grapes, right? Apples, apples come in their own portion. And yeah. once you finish an apple, you, most people would feel kind of foolish eating a second apple, yeah. but people don't have that problem to keep reaching their hands into that bag of grapes. And so apples have their own portion control. Things like grapes and raisins and nuts do not. Oh, yeah. We call those sugar bombs. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The um, sugar bombs. It's, yeah, it's also interesting that you mentioned eating the, the raw carrots and celery because one of the things that I did want to talk about also uh, had to do with the glycemic index of different yeah. foods. Yeah. And foods that are, um, foods that have, so the glycemic index, I should explain, is um, a measure of how much our blood sugar level is raised by a particular food. And we know that when our blood sugar level um, is increased, then that's going to affect the amount of insulin that we have available and therefore affect our fat storage. So high glycemic foods cause a really large insulin spike. Yeah. And this makes it so that we can store a tremendous amount of energy, but that insulin falls off quite quickly and we get what some people refer to as a sugar crash. So high glycemic foods might be things like jelly beans or a baked potato. If instead you choose lower glycemic foods, the original insulin spike is not nearly as pronounced. Uh, we then spread the insulin over a longer period of time, and it makes us less likely to store large amounts of energy immediately. Uh, so these might be things like plain rice or low-fat yogurt. The interesting thing, though, is that you can take a low-glycemic food, like carrots, and turn them almost into high-glycemic foods by cooking them or doing other types of food preparation to them. So the raw Absolutely. foods and the crunchy foods are awesome. Yeah. No, it's yeah. funny. when you I, I love carrots, but if you create carrot juice, like in a soup, it could mm -hmm. add a lot of sugar and flavor. That It's okay, but you have to realize that it may not be as low glycemic index as if you're chewing on them raw. Yes, this is true. Yeah. yeah. Yep. I mean... 
It's amazing. You know, you, you seem to, you've harnessed the perfect balance between knowing the science and um, the human humanity behind food relations, because it really is, you know, and I think that's part about the advancement of, of science and weight loss or looking good and feeling good in any way is really kind of educating yourself and understanding humanity and relationships and that most of us all deal with a certain type of relationship with food. It's not easy. I tell people, you're special, but you're not uncommon. A lot of people are going through this. And I think uh, this topic of the psychology of eating is so essential because it's a difficult one for everybody. Any, any closing tips that you give to people? Because you're dealing with the struggle all the time when, when yeah. you're talking. <laughs> yes. So um, there are two very simple, um, two very simple things that people can do to reduce the amount of food that, that they serve themselves and ultimately eat. Uh, the first of these is to use smaller plates. So in the 1960s, the diameter of our plates was about nine inches. By the early 2000s, they were up to 11 inches. Doesn't seem like a lot, does it? Going from a nine inch round plate to an 11 inch round plate. But if you do the math, you yeah. realize that just that extra two inches in diameter actually increases the area of the plate by almost 50%. Yeah, I would have guessed 40%, that's huge. It is huge. It is huge. And so a smaller portion of food on a small plate is going to look more adequate. It's going to look like an appropriate portion size. And you'll be less likely, if you're serving yourself, to take more food onto a small plate than a large plate. Yeah. The other thing that, uh, and this kind of gets back to my original point about how we just want to get it on and get it over with, is to try to produce, cook food that is aesthetically pleasing. People who um, were given an opportunity to eat dinners that were created according to art-inspired themes huh. were much more likely to rate those foods as tasty than foods that had the exact same ingredients but were not presented in such an artful way. So that's something that is, those are two things that are super, super easy for, for anyone to do. Um, the last thing that I did want to close with is that, you know, not only do you maybe want to lose weight so that you look better, uh, you may want to lose weight so that you feel better, but losing weight also has pretty significant effects on your cognitive functioning. So people who are at an ideal weight or even a little lighter um, are much more likely to be superior in terms of their cognitive functioning. They are less likely to develop dementia. They um, are just better able to, to keep things in memory and to do problem solving. And these are not things that people, I don't think, think of. They think about that in terms of their nutrition, but they don't necessarily think of that just in terms of their body size. So aerobic activity, eating lots of small meals to keep those insulin spikes reasonably low, 
uh, using small plates, and making your food look pretty are all really simple things that people can do to try to get a handle um, on this weight loss issue. Yeah. And, and, you know, listen, this is true of a lot of things in beauty and health. They're not as mutually as exclusive as we once thought they are. Things we can often do for, with the intention of looking better has benefits for our health. And if we're, if we're going to the gym for our health to get our cholesterol down, it has aesthetic benefits. And I think, you know, this is the balance that people, it's not just, uh, you know, functional or aesthetic. And I think that is the key to what we're talking about here. That's what we're trying to get across on the podcast, because really everybody wants to be the best version of, of themselves. And on that note, I will thank you, Dr. Maz, for joining us. That was educational, even to this physician who is a psychology major. Um, awesome. And it, was, it was a pleasure to talk to you. It was a pleasure to talk to you as well. Thanks for joining us. We hope you found it educational as well. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out previous episodes of Set the Tone, the podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned for future episodes. Visit bodybybtl.com for more information on BTL's M-Sculpt Neo.